Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to season two of the Why Not Horror podcast. How is everyone doing? We have had such a tremendous few months in the collective. It's been a whirlwind, uh, to put it mildly. And there's been a lot of change in the uh, in the music industry, both in the UK and Ireland, since we ran the original gender disparity data reports in, in Ireland and then in UK, um, where we had a contributor on, uh, Nadia Khan from Women in Control, and then in Ireland, uh, myself and Anya, and then we formed the collective and we've a legion of, of women now and um, and members that are supporting and, and a part of the team. And it's just been wonderful. I thought, you know what, what better way to kind of kick in season two? Um, and to talk about a recent report that we put out, which spans 20 years of the Irish singles charts. And yeah, I think, you know, talk about activism, talk about the work that we do, talk about how you can get involved and talk about how accessible change and acting change can be and being part of a movement that is, you know, it's it's whole surroundings its whole the whole precipice that we're standing on that we're jumping off is towards equality um so yeah we're just going to talk a little bit about politics on today's podcast we're going to talk about you know the reports that we've just done we've just put out over the last while and just the journey that we've been on so yeah we have um margaret e ward who was on season one margaret is a well-known entrepreneur and journalist broadcaster based in dublin she's worked with the irish times the sunday times she's been a presenter on news talk and she is currently the ceo of clear inc and broadly speaking wonderful wonderful human she also has helped with this latest report and she's a fantastic ally and feminist and we have winnie ama who is an incredibly talented um musician and singer-songwriter and a wonderful data analyst who has been the lead researcher on the latest report. And yeah, without further ado, let's just get to it. So how are you uh, both doing today? Um, it's been a really interesting few weeks since we published the 20-year uh, report that spanned the Irish singles charts. And I suppose we kind of decided to get together and talk about the whole process of that and today I have uh, just introduced uh, Winnie and Margaret you know let's get straight to it and let's talk about uh, this report. Winnie you go ahead you're the you're the data person who pulled it all together. Okay I'll go first so um, yeah so it was a quite an interesting project it's not one that I've ever done before so um, my background is in data um, and one of my favorite projects was about the gender pay gap, um, analyzing data from different companies and um, the gender pay gap um, within them. So this was like basically my ideal project because it put together my two favorite things, data and music. So um, I really enjoyed doing it. It was it was a very big job, but mm. very worth it because I guess it's one of those things where you might have your assumptions, but you, whenever you look at the data, then it just makes everything really clear to see. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. But I didn't enjoy the, the data. I didn't, find, I didn't enjoy the discovery element of it. I didn't enjoy the fact that what the 20 years amounted to is predominantly male artists being featured in the charts, you know. And that to me was was quite startling it was quite disheartening it was heartbreaking it was harrowing I, I I really really felt a very emotional response when looking at this data I mean for each female act that reaches the chart across the 20-year period 4.6 male artists reach the chart for each female chart entry there's seven entries from a male artist you know each week spent on the charts by a female act male acts 
spend 11.5 weeks. You know, these figures, they're just so startling. And you kind of go, you know, 78.3% of the last 20 years of the Irish singles charts were dominated by male artists. You know, you're looking at, you're looking at it and you're going, what? You know, I mean, 11.2% were female. 9.2% were collaborative, you know. I... The numbers, when you see it in front of you, I mean, it was very, very unsettling. You know, it was very um, stark. But also we're kind of, you know, we're being told, oh, you know, the Cranberries were successful and Samantha Mumba and Laura Isibor. And then like, you know, Imelda May came into the equation and stuff like that. But you're thinking, but hang on a second. We're talking about people that charted and people that were in people that were in high rotation that got a lot of the spotlight. And then you find out that, you know, let's fact check here. A lot of these people were white and male. How, how does that make you feel, um, Winnie? I know that makes me feel enraged. I think it's easy for, for, for a person, for me in particular, to assume that whatever is not going right is my fault. But this just kind of proves that it isn't. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, it was it was difficult to see because it because the numbers were stark and very shocking, but also it gave me hope that um, there's a way out and it's um, it, yeah it has to be something institutional. It's a big job, but it can be done because similar movements have happened in other industries and across the world in in different ways. So I, I feel good about it in that sense. Yeah, and then Mags, from your perspective, I mean. I know you you have come from the background of a lot of campaign work. Can you just give us uh, an introduction, an overview, if you will, of, you know, now and then and and where this all stemmed from? Because you were a huge inspiration for the Why Not Her campaign. Well, I guess like my background is journalism and investigative journalism. Um, but I started my career as a college music DJ doing a world beat music program. And I wrote a biography of Bob Marley in 1992. So I love music um, and it's always been a big part of my life. And then, you know, I was an investigative journalist, a business and financial journalist um, in the United States and in, in Ireland for, you know, two decades. Um, and then I started Women on Air in 2010 because I was really frustrated that I was the only woman on a panel, on a radio or a television panel, and they were asking me about finance and business and economics. And and that's all fine, but I'm not an economist. You know, they'd ask me about American politics. That's not my area of specialization. You know, just because I have an American accent doesn't mean I'm an expert in that area. And I found it really frustrating when I would ask conference organizers and television and radio panelists, like, you know, where where are the women? Where are they? And oh, there were no other women. They, and I'm like, but there are. There are hundreds and thousands of women who work in all the areas you're looking. I can give you 10 women's names. And they'd be like, oh, right. Yeah, no, look, one woman is fine. And I just couldn't get a, my head around that, like why women were being excluded or why their voices weren't appreciated. And then I thought, is it because I have an American accent? You know, do they think I'm more knowledgeable or something? Is there that kind of, oh, you know, foreigners know more? And I, and I thought that was offensive as well. You know, I live in Ireland. My mother, my parents are Irish. Um, what's wrong with having an Irish woman or a woman with a different accent on the panel? So I found that super frustrating. And then you know, the, the initial thing is always denial. So you go to somebody and you say, oh, you know, is this a problem? And they'll be like, what are you talking about? It's fine. We have plenty of women working at the station as researchers and producers. And you say, well, what about the voices that are on air? Oh, we have that. We have that woman DJ. She has a show from 5 to 7 a.m. And you're, and you're like, OK, but from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. It's all male presenters. Oh, yeah, but the producers and researchers are women. So, you know, no matter what I said or how many questions I asked, they they really acted like I was hysterical and this was my problem and nobody else was complaining, so I should just shut up. So then I started looking at it from my financial journalism and investigative journalism point of view and thought, well, what data can I find that disproves what they're saying? So the first one was listeners prefer men. 
I was like, oh, I do. And I was told this by journalism professors when I studied at DCU. Um, I was told this by people in the industry. And I was like, oh, will you send me that research? I'd love to read it. I've I've never heard that before. Mm. So, of course, they'd never send it to me. So this happened about 10 times. And I thought, I'm going to research this myself. So I looked into it and I found out that there was a study um, that interviewed, I think, 40 men and 40 women. and they, they listened to news presenters presenting the news. And uh, by a small majority, I think they, pre- they preferred the male newsreader. Okay. And the results of the study said it was down to the gender bias of the time. That report came out in, I think, 1939. <gasps> no. Oh, my what? God. And it that was, was called The Psychology of Radio. right but 1939 and that was used as the basis then for like an urban myth that excluded women from radio for decades and and so i would show this to the and say that's not true and show them the data and then they were like well microphones were built for men so they don't pick up a woman's voice register what Yes. I've heard this before. Is that true? No, it's not true. (laughs) I I know it's not true. So I looked it up again and I was like, well, maybe in the 1930s that was true. But I think technology has come on a long way since then. And that's also not true. So then they said, "Well, well, people think that women's voices are shrill and annoying. So I look that up and actually they choose they choose women's voices for customer service because mm-hmm. most people find women's voices soothing, motherly, calming. So mm-hmm. that wasn't true. So it was this constant thing of like myth upon myth, lie upon lie. And then another one was, oh, I see that, you know, you had an opening for um, a presenter for, for one of the primetime shows. And, you know, did, did you shortlist any women? No women applied. Mm. Now, I knew that three of my friends had applied. Mm. Right. So there's there's also lying. (laughs) So it's not just perpetuating myths out of ignorance. They're they're actually lies. So so these things frustrated me because I was like, well, you know, there's reality and there's truth. And I guess as a journalist, you know, I'm always seeking the truth. So I thought, well, I'm going to find the data. So I've done the research. So now let's look at the numbers. I'm you know, I like numbers. I was a financial journalist. So that's when women on women on air, pardon me, started tracking the female versus the male voice of experts on the airwaves. And needless to say, the results were terrible. Jesus. I mean, following data, like, because a lot of people, I mean, before I got involved and I was so inspired by the work of um, making the feminist, sounding the feminist, women on air. Like I was so aware of what you were doing for a long time, but, and I, and I had access to data myself in what I eventually did do. And we started with Why Not Horror, but I was kind of like, oh, it's, it must be so hard. I'm not mathematically minded. I'm not really, you know, I can work around Excel, but I wouldn't be like a total pro in it. And like, and I had all these blocks, blocks in my head, but then I kind of stepped back a little bit and I was like, well, are these my actual thoughts or is this what I'm, you know, it's like ingrained in my brain that women don't do these things because it's a man's job. And then I kind of went, well, no, the women have done it in, you know, in, in Women on Air and in Waking the Feminist and Sound of the Feminist. And this is what they're doing. The National Women's Council are doing it. And I think a lot of people kind of look from a distance and say, oh, yeah, that's amazing. But I, I couldn't, I don't think I would be able to do that. But you, it's it's so accessible when you you know look into it in the in the reality of things and if you get a group of people like if one can't do one thing another person could do something else and I think that's a really important thing that that I've learned um, especially with with Winnie on board as well because she's such a wizard with um with data and um you know Excel and it's and it's kind of it's joining them gaps and it's kind of joining the dots and working together and I kind of say this a lot and people kind of go oh yeah but whatever but it really is kind of when you work together you rise together uh, especially with the female collectives and so first I want to say like major thanks for that because it was so inspirational to see the work that you've done but to then see that it was 
you know, 10 years of work and to see that, you know, some things have changed, but not loads had changed. And it was kind of like, wow, you know, and that was when we kind of, you know, I, Keen had, had come to me because we put out the initial report on radio play last year and uh, Keen Sullivan got in touch and said, look, uh, my dad works in data and I'm like a total geek with data. And I have, I think he has as far back as when the charts started, like, wow. he said, what, what about if we do like, you know, 20, 30, 40, whatever years of, of, of data and I have like local charts and even before it went national and I said, whoa, <laughs> you know, um, let's just do 20 years and see where we go. And we started off with a two year report and the correlation with radio and, and radio plays on the initial report was just stark. Um, and it was so clear that even though radio were coming back going, oh, well, the guys that are played, uh, you know, the guys that are played in the radio are those that reach the charts. But then I said, no, they reach the charts after they're played on radio because people hear them and they download their music. But they were totally denying this, like completely and utterly, completely and utterly denying it. And it was kind of, that's one of them kind of things going, but how can they actually say this to me when it's complete and utter, complete and utter nonsense, you know? And, and so I think that was what the, kind of him and Han about doing such an extensive report. And then we got like Winnie on board and yourself and Brenda and that. It was like, you know what? Yeah, I feel that we can do this. You know, we can, we can put the best foot forward and see what, what we can do with it. Because it was so, it was a very, you know, there's a lot of data. It was a lot. It, it was uh, 1,233. Jeez. You know, it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, what, where do we begin? What do we kind of do with this? And how do we utilize it? And like wish uh, what you just said there, Mags, with, you know, correlating and debunking and, and you know, myth busting and stuff. What, what do you do? What, what, what did you do then to kind of say, right, well, how do I use what I have, what I've found, what I've discovered, and how do I use that to implement change? How do I use that to, you know, try and say, right, well, this is what you said to me, but I'm after doing my research and this is, it actually wasn't true. And here we, here we are. It's not my opinion. These are facts here. Um, and again, like just from kind of broad, broadcasting and, and from, you know, from your background then to seeing, coming in and seeing the, the music and you've, you've, you'd already seen the reports and then the, the charge report. Because, I mean, you were kind of saying, oh, this is like, yeah, it's totally, everything correlates, you know, and, and this is your this is your stage now in, in what, what we were doing uh, as a collective. Like you were kind of saying, yes, this is what I experienced with Women On Air. Like I had to go and I had to debunk all of the, the BS that they said, you know, and it, it was great. Like, and for, for you to kind of see that cross- Kind of crossing over into music and stuff like from that that perspective and as a, a music enthusiast and lover like what what were your initial yeah, I mean I guess the first thing that um that I was I was happy about for all of you was that you had source data okay so with women on air we literally had to listen yeah. to every radio program they weren't even archived wow. every television program uh, every newspaper, right? So it was counting. Like, and I still, I'm a bit obsessive about newspapers, Sunday papers. I have, mm. I have spreadsheets where I take out all the main sections of all the Sunday papers and I write down one female byline, one male by, byline, photograph of a woman, a model, photograph mm. of a man, a hero, you know, and, and then who's, who's talked about in the article, what are, how are they talked about? So I see it every single day. I just got into this habit of counting. So we don't actually have like a database, like you guys have access to all of that. And that's one of the big problems with women's voices on radio. Now there is technology apparently that exists and Google, I think started developing that technology 10 years ago. And I made the radio stations aware of this. And, and now there are three different companies that offer this kind of thing mm. and they won't do it. They refuse to do it. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them claim it's editorial interference if we say that you, ha you should have, you know, women on your panel. Um, so, so the first thing is you, you've started at a better base than we have because you can really crunch into that and show it. The second thing is that when people are arguing with you about this, and it can be men and women who will say you're wrong or you're hysterical, mm -hmm. they'll try to draw you into the emotion of it you have to stick to the data. And that's always what I did. You know, they would be getting very angry and 
you know, I remember this one female station manager in particular who was like yelling at us and women on air and being like, you know, I set a good example for my daughter because, you know, I'm a producer and I was a researcher and, and I'm a manager behind the scenes. And how dare you say that I don't set an example for your daughter? And it was like, we're called women on air. You know, we're we're not looking at the support staff. And yes, you're really important, but your daughter can hear your voice on the airwaves. Your daughter, you know, can hear you as an expert. We focus mainly on the experts. So I think the thing is pointing to the data, you know, data is irrefutable. Now, they also tried to trash the data. There were like hit squad articles, editorials written by people who were um, presenters who also had a national newspaper platform who said things like, um, what did they say? Oh, they'd say, well, the women on air database of experts. I mean, there are only a few hundred women on there. <laughs> and it's like, well, well, why don't you create your own? Or why don't you even try using a few of those women? Or they might say that they're not the people that we need or they're, they haven't vetted them. It's not our job to vet them. We're volunteers. That's your job. You're a researcher, producer. You get a bunch of names. You ring them. You do your research, see if they're going to be good on air or not. That's not our job. So it's kind of like any that the, the strategy seems to be to put more and more barriers in your way so that you have to go off and do the busy work. So they send you to do the busy work to disprove a myth or a lie. And then you come back and you say, that's not true. And then they go, well, then this. Well, then that. Well, then. But with the data... Mm. what how can they challenge that but they do this is the thing like they, they, they do still, it. yeah they still have something to say like Joyce uh, Fagan a, a brilliant uh, journalist did a piece in the Irish Examiner there uh, about four or five weeks ago and it was very very good you can find it online and um, at the end she discovered that it was it, it, of, of all the major current affairs uh, talk show across regional radio um between the hour of 9 to 11, which is also known as the hour of power, um, that 89% of the presenters were white, cis, male. And when she did a really, I mean, such a superb research piece, she then got in touch with the likes of, you know, regional radio stations. And, you know, some of them got back, like this is what (laughs) one of them got back and said, you know, um, the conversation about gender balance is an important one to have across the whole of our industry. We're very clear that while our off-air talent is equally pretty split between male and female, it's not true on-air. In the last year, we've created a diversity and inclusion steering group within Wireless. This is between this is Wireless owned a lot of the and run a lot of the regional radio stations, and this is published. So I'm just literally reading from what's what's written. Um, and they said, you know, we're on a course to do better and to have better representation on air. Clearly, things are not going to change overnight, but we're confident that we have the right strategy in place and we're committed to it. Now, I got something similar over a year ago from a lot of radio stations and very little change. And we had to really, really, really push, push, push and constantly deliver. Like, you know, I think it was every month I got in touch with radio and said, look, you you're not playing, you're still not playing artists. Where's the diversity? You know, Soleil is not the only black artist in Ireland. You know, uh, she's not the only female artist in Ireland. Like, why are you, why are you, like, then Irish Women in Harmony came out and they just start playing Irish Women in Harmony. 45 women on one track and they thought that was enough. So it's kind of, and then like, you know, the likes of, you know, a lot of other regional radio stations got back and said, you know, on the face of it, the time allocated to male broadcasters is, you know, 70 to 80 percent during the day. However, female presenters on our stations are presenting talk based programs. Uh, it's time they spend it's the time they spend talking on air that is far greater than the two male presenters do. So they're trying to say, well, even though, yes, the prime time slots go to men, we do also give slots to women. But if that might be on a really later schedule where it does not. Yeah, I, I mean, this is Linda, this is the game. OK, yeah. so yeah. so, for example, we would spend a lot of time and like I spent my own money, you know, yeah. on the research, as I know you guys have as well. Right. Mm. So my own money from my family's pocket, um, you know, family holidays or whatever to get the research done. And so I could only afford to do, say, a certain period of time, like a week or something. And then they would say, well, that's just a snapshot. And you go, "Okay, well, look, I'm happy to give you the names of the researchers and you can you can commission your own research and you can do a month or you can do a year. Do you think I ever heard from them? 
Yeah. No. Okay. So, you know, and it's this busy work, busy work, delay, delay. So I heard those same things 11 years ago. And this thing of it's not going to change overnight. Well, you know what? It can change overnight. So Vincent Brown decided when he was doing The Tonight Show, and this was in the early days of Women on Air, like I think the first year, he said to his producers, from now on, we are going to have 50-50 men and women on this program. And every day after the show, if they didn't, he would say, why not? He would, he, why not her? Right. He would hold them to account. And so say one day they had, you know, three men and one woman, the next day he would expect that they would be made up for, or by the end of the week that there was an equal balance. So it can change overnight. They are choosing not to give women a platform. They are choosing to silence women's voices, whether they are presenters or experts or musicians. This is a choice. Mm. We can see that because, I mean, with Spin 103.8, our station that I had such a pleasant experience dealing with, whereas other stations where, oh, quote unquote, you know, you're throwing us under the bus. Like, you know, you're, you're, we're like lambs to the slaughter. You're like, you're like the big bad wolf coming in. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of going, but this this is data. This isn't my opinion. This isn't me attacking you. I'm just presenting data. I'm asking you, can you change? And a lot of them said, oh, we can't. We don't have the budget. But yet Spin, 103.8, one of the biggest commercial stations in Dublin, literally changed within a few weeks. And they've stayed with it for the whole year. They're now, like some, some months, they're 65% uh, parity towards females. They've amazing diversity on their playlists. And they're doing it, no problem. And I, I kind of was chatting to like Gavin Ward, amazing guy in there, the heads of music. And I said, you know, this is amazing. He said, yeah, we just, you know, we got together and said, like, let's let's do this. And as simple as that, you know. And with, with RT Radio One, like Martina McLean, she she did it publicly quoted, and she said, you know, we it's a mindful decision every week. We see artists coming in and we say, well, this has to be 50-50. It has to be. Like, there's no choice. It just has to be. Um, and it's as simple as that. And, like, you know, when you, when you hear a lot of them kind of going, oh, it's, we'll get there eventually. But, like, who are we going this slow for? We're all yeah. ready for the change. Well, well yeah. exactly. Who are we going slow for, right? And, and the number of times that I've heard them say to politicians, well, we can't do this because we don't have the budget. And I say, sorry, you don't have the budget for a, a pencil and a piece of paper? I'll give it to you. Exactly. It, it's a decision that they're making proactively because it's it's not down to budget. Budget is not relevant. It's not relevant because it's a decision that people are making. They, they have access to the world of artists and they, they make proactive decisions. And it's, it, yeah, budget is a laughable excuse. And, and why are they then using money, you know, like government funding or even advertisers money to promote a very small part of the population, right? Mm. So if you look at, so men are say 49% of the Irish population, but the people that they're platforming are generally, they're white, they're middle-class, they're upper middle-class, they're only from certain professions. Like, where's the equity in that? I mean, I pay my taxes. Why is, why is money, my money towards going only, you know, promoting mainly male artists? I don't agree with that. Yeah, it's just shocking. I mean, Anytime I've been doing these reports and, and I look at it, I look at the data and I, I, I always, and I, you know, I don't know why, because I know how bad it is, but I always am just jaw to the floor, like, and like gut wrench and heart broken when I see, wow, like, you know, and I know, uh, Winnie, you can totally agree with this like when we were going through you know the, the 20 year report and it was just, it was like going scrolling down 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 and it was all because we did it kind of color coordinated on the excel file and it was just literally the same the whole then little tiny mm-hmm. female act or an artist of color all the way down female act but it was just predominantly just white it was totally homogenized and male and it was when you see it that's dark and then i kind of went you know, how many women have we lost over the years? How many voices from the generation of, of Irish women who created music have we never heard? You know, I've spoken to a lot of women who messaged um, the, the, at the Why Not Horror email um, when they seen the report. Like, we got loads of emails in. And 
they were kind of like, you know, yeah, well, we kind of gave up, you know, and these women were, you know, in their 50s, some of them late 40s, uh, 50s, early 60s at this stage. And they were saying, yeah, well, you know, at the time, you know, Dolores Reardon, she'd just come from America. She broke in America. Irish radio weren't kind of playing her before they left. And then when they kind of start being played elsewhere, then Irish radio went, oh, well, we better start playing them. So even at that, the Cranberries, one of the biggest artists ever to come from Ireland, they weren't played in Ireland until they made it somewhere else. So you're kind of going... God, and I never heard. And then I was like, send me some of your music. And then, like, you know, just get talking to loads of different women and their stories, like, oh, my God, it was just heartbreaking. And they were kind of saying, oh, well, I've since had, you know, children or I have a niece or... And you're kind of, and they're kind of like, you know, we, we're, we're so hopeful that their voices now just might be heard. But when you hear this from so many women that you just we didn't even know played music. I mean, there were some women that I know. So it's really stark because they end up going into different areas of the industry. Then. Like, like, like Winnie, it's, you're, Linda, you're right. Like you're picking up yeah. on that point that, that Winnie said at the beginning, you know, Winnie was like, oh, I realize it's not my fault. Like Winnie, yeah. did you kind of feel like, oh, I guess I'm not good enough? You yes. know? Yeah, because that's what they tell you when they reject you. They're like, no, we're not, we don't want like this kind of thing, not for us. Um, and when you, and so it's art. So art is subjective and you have to have a thick skin to be an artist because, and you know, need to know that in advance. But um, different, uh, I promote my music worldwide, but the, I would say definitely the lowest. Um, feedback was from Ireland and Northern Ireland and I'm, that's where I'm from so that's why I was like a bit baffled by it as well because for me I think there's nothing more um culturally satisfying and beautiful than hearing your own local artists if I hear a local artist I want to hear more because they're telling stories from my area that I know and I can reflect on so I, I was I wasn't I was taking it personally but I didn't, I didn't, I never like settled on a conclusion or a reason of why it wasn't getting very far um, in Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, but this just give it a context that, and I'm sure a lot of, I'm sure most female Irish artists are feeling the same way and probably disheartened, probably thinking their work isn't good enough. And also probably a bit confused because they can see what, what music is being promoted and their work is probably the same, if not better. So I can fully understand um, the, the mental journey and roller coaster. And it's, it's not, it's just not, it doesn't need to be that way. And there's, there's just no need for it. It's kind of bizarre. I just think it's odd. For me, like, re, you know, you're looking through the data and you're looking through your report and, and then it's, then that dawns on you, like what you just said. And you went, Oh my gosh. You know, you just think about all these women over so many decades who played and played their heart out and wrote and did everything they could to get on a stage, you know, played in schools, played, you know, local parish halls, played everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And they just couldn't break through. And they just thought either I didn't work hard enough. I wasn't good enough. And that's soul destroying. And like that, that doesn't just take something from them, which is, you know, that's their God-given talent. And that's something that surely they should be able to share with the world and make a living out of. But that takes something from our culture that's taking our stories. It's taking our experiences, our voices, our talent. You know, it's it's like I feel like it's been robbed from all of us living here. Mm, definitely. I was actually got into this conversation with a journalist the other day. I mean, how do we begin rewriting that narrative? How do we start including, obviously we're all working different campaigns, we're all working the same, we're all working together as well. But in terms of sharing that, I found that um, press has been very supportive uh, in Ireland and, and in the campaigns that we've been doing in the UK as well. And that they they kind of look at it, you'll see journalists looking at it and you'll see kind of, you know, editors and stuff getting in touch going, oh my God, you know, this is this is unbelievable. Like I remember, because obviously my, my background is a publicist, I remember sitting down with uh, Tony Clayton leave the Irish Times. Oh, this is about five years ago. And we're sitting in a cafe and I was I used to meet up with him every few weeks and I'd just give him CDs and albums and stuff and we'd have to, to crack the jokes and that. And um, I remember him turning around to me one day and he says, uh, he says, can I ask you a question? He said, I want as honest an answer as you can give. I says, yeah, yeah, Grant. And I said, uh, firehead. And he says, um, what do you think is more 
impacting for an artist if you're representing an artist say if they get a five-star album review versus a playlist on today fm or or rte i was kind of like well you know i mean it all depends there's a lot of people a readership and there's music enthusiasts but if you look at the people say if one paper gets 180,000 readers or whatever out of that 180,000 there's a lot of them that don't even care about the music section and they're not going to read the album reviews it's only avid musicians or else music lovers that will so that's cut down cut down cut down down to the tiny percentage so it's not just about the readership figures it's about the people within the readership figures that actually take the time to read the reviews so obviously the answer was radio and I was like oh can I say it to him and I, and I said well you asked me for an honest I said radio is king I said it always has been and it always will be and I said that's what shapes the Irish culture of music and he just kind of went well thanks thanks for being honest and he said that Quite a little bit of heartbreaking, but thanks for being honest. And I, I always talk about that afterwards because it really does, you know. I mean, as publicists, we plug, you know, we try to get artists on TV and exposure. Online now is huge. Um, you know, like some Mumford and Sons and artists like that a few years ago, they really changed things with the online revolution where, you know, a lot of artists released an album and then they re-released it and they pushed it online and it just, you know, blew up. Um, and there's artists like Bonnie Vare and stuff like that that don't get radio play, but they get a massive amount of exposure online. So it has changed. But as Winnie just said there, that's more on a global or international level. But certainly within Ireland, radio is, and it, I, I don't see it really changing. I mean, even with Spotify um, playlists and that, you know, it it's, it's it is radio, and I was it always will be, and it always has. So it's kind of like when you see it so obvious and clear, and then you look at the data behind it, and you go, well. Of that, like say in the last, the most recent report, 85% of the most uh, highest heavy rotation played uh, artists in Ireland, 85% are white male. You know, 11% uh, were female identifying artists and 4% were um, collaborative artists. And you're kind of going, wow, this is really, really bad. How do I work with this? How do we rewrite this? Well, yeah, you know like I, you know, I guess, you know, because of my American background, but right, I'm here 26 years, Irish parents, the whole thing, you know. Mm. Um, but I, I look at, you know, what was the turning point in most social movements where people who were not those experiencing discrimination got on board with those who were? So in the United States, you know, we had the horror of slavery um, and then the horror of post-slavery, um, you know, mass uh, policing and inca- incarceration of the black community as a way to control um, the civil rights movement, you know, Jim Crow laws in the South. And what was the tipping point there when white people said, you know what, were people who were non-white, but who were not black and were not experiencing, say, Jim Crow um, era segregation, when did they go, you know what, this is my fight too? And, and where can we find that? Because why is it that people are able to say there is discrimination against people of color, there is anti-Semitism, there is homophobia, but when you say there's sexism, they kind of go, what are you talking about? Women are equal. Like, is this the last, you know, travelers obviously are not, um, you know, traveler women are treated abominably, you know, as we know. So, yes, there are many, many, many groups of people, trans people who are being horribly discriminated against. But I just wonder, what is that tipping point? Like, what do we need to do to say, like, this inequality also isn't good for you? You know, you don't get you're missing out on these great female artists. You're missing out on women's voices and opinions that might help you think differently and solve a problem in a better way because there's greater greater diversity in the boardroom or in politics or whatever. Like, I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet. Yeah, because diversity benefits everybody. Inclusion benefits everyone because. The but they don't is. believe that, Linda. Like, they don't. I've had this discussion, and they just feel like, well, you're just trying to take power from me. Why would I hand it over to you? Why would I hand you the microphone? Why would I disadvantage? You know, they think, well, if I do that now, then maybe my son won't get a job. Mm. 
Yeah, this this is something that I found a lot, and it was also quite astonishing during the um, the gender pay gap reports that I did. So I spoke to hundreds of companies um, in HR departments, and um, this is whenever the government was bringing in a rule in the UK to say that every company with more than two hundred and fifty employees has to do a report on the their gender pay gap split down by quartiles and so on, and so. These companies were really irritated um, that they had to do the reporting. Fair enough. Um, they never done it before. But they also were adamant, absolutely adamant. There is no gender pay gap within their own company. And I was like so just baffled because even whenever I just look on their LinkedIn page, on um their careers page, I can see there's definitely a gender pay gap because of the gender of the people in a certain type of roles, which commands a different salary. But until the government required them to disclose and to report on it in a very specific way, so you can um, like fluff up the numbers in your favor, until Mm -hmm. that day where they all had to publish it, everyone was, I would say a good... A good 80, 90 percent of companies were denying they even had a gender pay gap issues. And whenever I challenged them about how they knew that and if they had any training um, on diversity and inclusion or any policies, and they had none, (laughs) they they just they got defensive, they got annoyed. But, yeah, it was it was only the government's um, intervention which made them admit there was a problem. And, and that, and maybe that is part of the solution, right? I mean, they like this has happened for so long because it's been hidden, mm-hmm. you know. And we all thought as women, well, it's my fault. I'm not getting paid enough because, well, I didn't negotiate hard enough for it, or maybe I didn't do my research, or maybe you know I'm not taking on enough projects. Like you're constantly beating yourself up that it's your fault. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, this is all hidden. As you said, you know, systemic discrimination, this is structural discrimination, institutional discrimination. And as individuals, we can't really do much about that. But the government can, politicians can, you know, we can, you know, if we went out and marched on the streets. (laughs) I think, uh, you know, if women became a powerful voting bloc in Ireland, things would certainly change. And I, I know, Max, that you do a lot of work with um, women for election. Can you just tell us a little bit about yeah. What, so, yeah, what that is? So it, Women for Election was actually founded around the same time as Women on Air. So there must have been something in the water <laughs> um, in 2010. Um, and what they did is they decided that they would not take any money from any political parties. But their goal was to increase the number of female representatives. Um, So Ireland has one of the worst records for female representation in the world. Like we're way, way down there with countries that you wouldn't expect. Now I'd have to look at the list, but it's really bad. So um, that should be an international embarrassment and something that the government is kind of going, oh gosh, that doesn't look very European. It doesn't look very, you know, United Nations-ish. Maybe we should pull our socks up. But the reality is that political parties haven't done much. So Women for Election um, trains women in how to campaign how to communicate, um, and how to have confidence when they're running for election. So I joined as a student, not because I wanted to run, but because I wanted to help women run. So I learned a lot from it. And then they have webinars and, you know, it's all really, um, you know, um, affordable. And it also creates networks of women. So I'm now their communications trainer. So I've been doing that for, I think, three or four years. And it's amazing to see these women, but also to hear the barriers that they face in running, in being selected as a candidate, because they're still an old boys network in politics, getting together the cash, sorting out the childcare. You know, these are all part of culture is a big part of it. Women are still seen as being the other within politics. So they're not particularly welcome. And there was a great report by Ivana Backchick about the barriers to women entering politics. That was a powerful game changer for organizations like Women for Election because they were able to see what they were and how we dismantle them. So, so that's the work it does. And it's been, you know, it, every year we're edging up just a little bit. But until we change the structures, 
that ensure that we have the political parties. I think it's 30 percent at the moment. If they don't run 30 percent candidates, they get their government funding taken. But that will increase to 40 percent, I think, soon. So the main parties in particular really have to get their act together or they will be fined. But at local level, at, um, for county councillors, for example, there's currently no requirement for parties to run, you know, 40 percent women, 40 percent men uh, for election. And that's a problem because that's mm. the channel. That's where a lot of people start their political re- career is working as a county councillor. Yeah, because I, I remember reading uh, Holly Kearns uh, article l- I think it was last year where she said there's, there's more men named Michael. Um that are that are in the that are in you know be it a local council or local TD um, in Cork and there is women in the entire uh, seat you know where she was on like she was I think she isn't was, that crazy like that's for, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like there's more men named Michael than there is women <laughs> so she just kind of going what if you even think about that it's it's just mind blowing you know and and she, you know she's a force you know but you're kind of going imagine if there was. 10 of her, 20 of her, 30 of her, which there are out there. There are. And, and, you know, so how, so say for instance, myself and Winnie, you know, we want to start, uh, we want to get involved with uh, politics, we want to go in, we want to, you know, do do something more. Like, I think a lot of people kind of go, oh, it's, you know, we have to have a degree in this or degree in that. No, you don't. This area. No. Yeah. No. And like the, the cool thing about being a campaigner is that it gives you a lot of transferable skills. Right. So well, I've been a campaigner now for 11 years. Right. So I learned a lot about um, persuasion, influence, social media. Right. I already knew about journalism because I was a journalist for so long. Mm. I learned about political systems, politics, lobbying, um, you know, professional business networks. You start to see the power structure. And Mm. once you understand that, you can start to influence the right people at the right time. So for anybody listening, I would say if you're interested in running for politics, start looking around at the different political parties. Ask them to send you a copy of their their booklet or their platform. They might send you a link. And that is something that you should look at and align it with your values. So, you know, one of my big values, obviously, it's women's rights. So I look at which companies have a good track record in not only saying that they are for equality, but what have they done, right? Because there, there's a lot of blah, blah, blah in politics, but maybe look at what have they have actually done. And then join a political party, go to the meetings, um, start to get to know local people in your area. And you'll see that a lot of them, the county councillors or sort of the local councillors do a huge amount of work on the ground. So that might be going to a local hospital or a childcare center or making sure that the parks are clean. You know, they have far more influence on the quality of your day-to-day life than you think. So that's a nice stepping stone. But maybe you you don't want to be a politician, but you want to run a campaign for somebody who does. So like that's the kind of thing I like doing. So I might help write somebody's speeches or, um, you know, do their uh, campaign material, their leaflets. I might rehearse them for a speech. I might say, look, here are 20 people you should go talk to. I know them personally. I'll do an introduction. So there are loads of ways in politics that you can get involved. And most parties will say, okay, look, if you're interested in policy, there's a policy area. If you're interested in campaigning, there's a campaigning area. If you're interested in the executive or boards, there's a board area. If you're interested in very local concerns, here's who you talk to. So suddenly you're plunged into this really supportive network of like-minded people. And that's empowering because sometimes as a campaigner, it can be really lonely out here, right? You feel like you're, you know, shouting into the wind. But the minute you join a political party that's aligned to your values, you'll see how much they're doing and how much they've done that you don't realize. And then you feel the power of that network and history. Um, You can also run as an independent. There's nothing to stop anybody from running as independents. And I know a few um, women of color who have done so quite successfully. There was a woman in Donegal. I think she became a local councillor, like a landslide victory. And I met a woman from... Was it Leitrim? Was she from Leitrim? 
No, the first woman was definitely Donegal, but I think Mm. they, um, it's, she's, I want to say Maeve or Louth, um, and amazing, ran an amazing campaign. And like, she left this really high powered job because she said, you know what? My community here is being ignored and we need to have a voice. And I want to role model to them and make sure that everybody living in Ireland is looked after. And she's done great things in her community. So, yeah, you know, politics is worth looking at. It doesn't mean you have to run or yeah. be a politician, but it means you can be part of that strong network and ethos. And mm-hmm. like I say, the main thing is your values. Align your values with the party that you choose to join. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's that's a great uh, overview because I think some people think, oh, if I get involved with politics, I'm, I, you know, I have to be a politician. But there's so many aspects. There's a myriad of different roles that you can do to contribute to different parties or, or different groups. And if you want to go as an independent, you can. But yeah, because I mean, even just doing the work that, that we're doing and like myself and Winnie have been on a few Zoom calls there in the last few weeks with different members of different parties and that. And it's so enlightening to see how different parties engage with social movements and how working together we can we can help each other because they want equality to be at the forefront they want diversity they want these things as well so it's been a huge learning experience and it's been wonderful how receptive different parties have been uh, with that you know in that regard and chatting over back and forth with, with Winnie um how do you feel about like that uh Winnie because I know you're kind of a little bit newer to this I've had kind of a year of uh experiences like well just in the last few weeks since publishing the the report you know you've, you've kind of been sitting in and, and listening to how it's all going it's 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 a really interesting experience isn't it very interesting. I had no point of reference at all <laughs> for this type of thing. So um, it's like a million miles an hour and so many great ideas. And um, and it's and actually it's very comforting to know that um, politicians really do listen whenever they've got um, something solid to that you're presenting to them and data and information and um uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't think they'd be as receptive as they were, to be truly honest. Um, so I was pleasantly surprised. I learned I've learned a lot <laughs> over the last few weeks, um, uh, both about uh, politically and in the music industry and um, all of it combined. So, yeah, it's been very, very enlightening. Yeah, I mean, you, you you did the interview with the Times in the UK and, you know, before we were kind of all talking about it and um you know, it's kind of, you, you, it's it's so, like, again, with the, just going back to, to, to data and putting out reports and, and using that as, as power, because a lot of the time, you know, when, when women are trying to say, look, this is unfair, this is uh, not equality, this is blah, 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 and it's all about like, oh, they're, they're being shrieked. They're being, you know, what, what are they on about? They're, they're being, they're moaning, they're bitchy, they're, women want this, women want that, they have equality, da, da, da. But then when you use data and you use that as power and that as a tool of power, it totally changes the tone in the room because it's not your opinion. So it's it's quite, you know, it's quite strange. It's quite weird. And I know that when you were doing the, the interview with the Times, like as with any major publication, like I even just from my background as a publicist, I'd always say to a client or to a friend or to a colleague, can be composed. Um, and but what I know that what you found as well is that when you have data, it's there's not much that they can refuse. There's not much that they can kind of go, well, you know, but, 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 but. And I think that's a great thing. I think that's a great experience that, that you know, we've, we've had throughout this is that when you do move forward with that, and that, again, going back to how supportive press have been, and I like that about press and I like that about uh, poli- uh, politics, is that they do, if you deliver a package or if you deliver a report and you deliver the facts and it's not it's not biased. It's not your views or your opinions. It's like, right, this is what we discovered. This is nothing got to do with any concepts we had in our head or anything. This is just literally ammunition for us to say, right, you know, we're, we don't want to constantly be at war with this, but this is what we have. This is, this is the best tool that we can use. Uh, how did you find that when you were, you know, chatting with the Times? Yeah, in, in any other scenario, I would be freaking out but because I'd been deep in this data and I knew it inside out. Um, I, it was it was really quite um, satisfying to be able to speak to a journalist who I knew was listening about 
uh, topic that can impact everyone and also to spread the the word and the message and hopefully the same feeling that I have that it's not our fault that we're not being played as much as as men so um it, yeah I was very grateful for that opportunity and um the, I got a, a lot of really nice responses from all over the internet social media and so on from men and women who were just as shocked as as I was um musicians and people outside the industry um so yeah it was definitely a very powerful tool to change um the minds of the people um on the ground the, at a grassroots level yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, just to kind of to, to wrap things up, so we're, we're all, and this is what a lot of, um, a lot of listeners, a lot of people don't understand is that like we all have jobs, we're all working. And then I know what you do, Winnie, like you're working, you're also a musician as well, and you're also recording, and you're constantly in a creative flow as well as uh, this, this kind of data driven and, and analytical, you know, and an incredible uh, brain that you have as well. So it's, and Mags as well, you know, we're, we're all doing a lot of things. And then, it is a shame that this isn't being done w- within organizations that are paid, supposedly paid to do it. Don't really want to go naming anybody because that's not going to do anything. But none of us are paid to do this, you know. And I think that's kind of, it has to be, you know, pat, a pat on the back, like, you know, because what we're doing here is it's a very difficult task. You know, we're, we're reaching out, we're researching like Mags, when you were just saying there, you go through the papers every weekend. It was like for the last 11 years. Well, no, <laughs> yeah. no, no. To be fair, it's not every weekend. It's when I get really annoyed and I start writing them down. So that's probably every quarter I get annoyed. It's ridiculous. Am I still, you know, am I accurate here? I, and I keep going, yeah. maybe I'll find things have changed. <laughs> they haven't. Oh, no. so, it's, I'm laughing but I'm really crying on the inside I mean it's just it's like I, I hope I hope we were talking about this earlier on Max, I mean I hope that we're on the cusp of something I mean I you know we can start to see uh, within Why Not Sure we start to see some radio stations like 2FM it took them nine months but they are now at more or less parity between 35 to 50% at any given month Spin have turned it around uh, Today FM are finally starting to play women um, FM 104 you know one or two women on their playlist but it is starting to happen you know Tip FM who were 100% male they're now at 35% parity like it's never happened it's just never happened so it's really good. It's really encouraging. And then to find out that the GAA cross cross over to sports, you know, they're now being going to be paid the same as the male players. It's just wonderful. So I do feel like we are in a part of history right now and, and it's happening. We're in it. We're part of it. We're part of the team that's driving it as well. And did, so you hear, many. did you hear about the Golden Globes? There are a huge number of people who are boycotting them because they're not diverse. So they went from having something like, I don't know how many, I want to say 19 million listeners down to six. Whoa. Wow. I so that's Cruise boycotted on a few orders. I didn't, yeah, know so I, that, I didn't have time to. Yeah. So that's the artist saying, you know what? This isn't right. And we need more of that. Yeah. We need all artists and politicians and citizens saying, this isn't right. We're mm-hmm. missing out on these people's creativity, you know, their contribution to the world. It has to change. So I really hope you're right, Linda, and that we are, because mm-hmm. I'm tired after 11 years. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to see the change. Ah, uh, but she'd be bored as well. Though. I would. I would. <laughs> I'd have to campaign on something else. <laughs> but look, I mean, I think, I think, you know, the takeaway from this, right, is anyone that's listening, I mean, uh, we get so many emails and, and I know we all get DMs and messages and stuff. Anyone can get involved. This isn't something that we, it's, it's not a click. It's not a special unit of people. You know, we're, we're all from very different fields, but we all collectively want change to happen. And we just got tired of, of it not happening. So we we kind of initiated it to happen. And that's as simple as that. It's like a switch. You can just go, you know what? I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be a part of a problem of this perpetual motion of, oh, you know, this is just how it is. I mean, I, I, and I was that person. I remember dating um, the stoic feminist uh, about five years ago. I would like to say it was like 15 years ago, but it was only five years ago. And, um, and she was so like, Linda, like we will, you know, equality, like it's this, it's terrible. And I was so used to hearing my Nana and like my, 
I grew up like kind of more or less around my nana and like older women and they were always like it's a man's world you know and you yeah yeah get and I know I know we've all heard find a farmer with a short cough you know and yeah, we'd, all, <laughs> we'd, all, we'd all laugh at it like but I'm with land get a man with a bit of land you know and you're kind of like but that's what women were told like they weren't told to go out go to college or get a great education or do an apprenticeship and something and you know it was like find a man you know, because it's a man. They weren't world. allowed, but Linda, they yeah. weren't allowed to get jobs. Like the whole yeah. thing is you had to get a man in order to be financially secure. Otherwise, you what was your option? Become a nun or you had to stay at home with your family. Yeah. So and, and this is part of the whole structure that we're trying to dismantle. Right. Yeah. It's the it's based on male supremacy. And all these structures are to ensure that men and white men in particular are at the top of the power pyramid. And we're saying like that day is over. Like, Mm. let's just get on with it. So there are a couple of dinosaurs hanging on here now. And Mm. for whatever reason, radio seems to be part of that structure. And you would just hope that young people in radio in particular would say, we want to hear all the voices, all the stories. We want to choose the music that we want to listen to from from the entire world of options instead of just this very narrow base that you're giving us. Yeah, totally, totally agree. So, right, final final words, final sentiments on the last few weeks that have been just hard campaigning. I'm tired, I don't know if I used to, but I'm really tired after it. I mean... What's what's your kind of thoughts on the whole thing, Winnie? And then we go over to Mags. Final thoughts. Ooh, <laughs> um, I do feel hopeful because I feel like um, there is a lot of change globally and awareness globally of um, gender disparity, um, and I feel like there's enough data information for the people in power to start making. Um, demands of the industry of the music industry of radio um, to create fairness because this is an issue which affects our culture our culture is being written right now it's being written in the past it's being written right now and it's not balanced at all so I feel like um, I feel hopeful and I feel like um, the future will be better than the past yeah that's my final thoughts (laughs) that's great I'm probably not as optimistic. <laughs> Sorry. You're hard. No negativity. <laughs> you know, 11 years into this, yeah. um, my advice would be you have to keep the pressure on through data collection or they roll it back. Mm. So that's what we saw with Women on Air and Waking the Feminists and loads of other organizations. If you don't continue to show the reality, the truth, through the numbers, then the status quo will just roll right back. But it's not up to us. This needs to be part of the government's job, monitoring, reporting, and consequences for those who are only representing a very small part of the population. Like the bold corner. Like, I'd love it to. The bold corner. You know, if they're bold, they don't get funding. If they're bold, they don't get Mm -hmm. their operating license for a radio yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sorry, it's government funding, which is funded by the taxpayers, taxpayers. And that includes women as well as men. Yeah, it's terrible. What kills me is like I pay 42 percent tax yeah. and I'm looking at all this data and I'm like, I'm 42 percent of my earnings <laughs> is going to this. Yeah, it's, it's it's just oh, my God. But look, I, I'm I'm going to probably want to believe in the sentiment that Winnie left us off. <laughs> yeah, sorry, you, you should have chosen Winnie to go last, not me. <laughs> I'm going to highlight this. In the, in the, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think, look, again, as I said earlier on, I think we are on the cusp of something. I think there has been a lot of, you know, tidal waves that were kind of mini tidal waves that were grown and grown and grown. But I think something, I don't know whether it's to social media I don't know whether it is I don't know what it is but I think for for whatever reason around the last few years there has been this consistent kind of you know people are talking more people are getting more brave they're getting less intimidated by the patriarchal system women are coming together Um, LGBTQIA community are coming together like diversity is everywhere you know we, we see it but 
we don't hear it and we don't kind of view it on across media as much, but we see it in our everyday. And because we can, we're exposed to a lot of social media, we can then see how missing it is in, in that kind of element. And I think that is making uh, room for people to go, well, do you know what? It's not okay anymore because we're exposed to so much and it's not a reflection of who we are or what is actually the real world. And I think that's what's going to be a part of what goes in our favour. Um, and I think that is going to be the way to is going to be a really powerful tool to get to that place. But um, but yeah, look, I think you know, I think anyone that's that's kind of listening again, and there's be so many people that kind of following the this campaign and other campaigns as well. And I think it's just you know check out um, every. I'll put in a kind of a, a piece at the at the end of this, uh, all the different. Um, and in the description of the podcast, just the cool collectives that are going on and the organizations um, of female collectives that are just really paving the way towards trying to enact change. And yeah, I mean, Mag's like 11 years, but like, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if you didn't start what you were doing. You know, Winnie wouldn't be doing it. You know, we have a lot to kind of, everything that we do impacts something else. Mm. You know, every single, every single way. torch. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, I know the darkest into light thing was the other night, but it really is it's a great description of like, you know, we just, for every piece of light that's shone, like something else is less dark, you know. So thanks for all your contributions in the last decade. And I think, you know, it's great to to have you involved and to have, um, you know, just that continuity and that consistency, because I think, you know, we're all better together. And, you know, we, well, we all stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before, right? Mm-hmm. So all the Irish feminists who fought for, you know, contraception, the contraceptive train, the right for women to work, the right for, uh, you know, w- women to have their own money, you know, not for it to be given directly to the man by the state, the, the right for women to stay in the family home, even if the husband leaves and those women did incredible work and continue to do great work. So it, let's hope, as you say, that the waves after wave after wave finally bring us onto the shore of equality. That would be wonderful. Absolutely. You have been listening to the Why Not Your podcast. This is season two and there will be many more episodes to come. So please make sure that you subscribe and We look forward to hearing and seeing you join the conversation.